0: Chapter fifty five of They Call Me Carpenter by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter fifty five Comrade Abel sat at the table with his head bowed in his arms, sound asleep. Lynch, the ex-soldier, and Tom Mineta, the Mexican, were lying on the floor snoring. And on a chair near the doorway, watching the scene, sat Hamby wide awake. We knew he was awake, because he leaped to his feet the instant we entered the door. Oh, it's you, he said, recognizing me. I noticed the alarm in his voice. I beckoned to him softly, come here a minute, and he came out into the ante room. At the same time old Joe stepped across the big room and stooped down and waked up Lynch. We had agreed that Joe was to give Lynch a whispered explanation of the situation, while I kept Hamby busy. Where is Mr. Carpenter? I asked he's in the private office praying. Well, said I, there's a sick woman who needs help very badly. I wonder if we'd better disturb him. I don't know, said Hamby. I've been here an hour and haven't heard a sound. Maybe he's asleep. I was uncertain what I should do, and I elaborately explained my uncertainty. Of course, praying was an important and useful occupation, and I knew that the prophet laid great stress upon it and all of us who loved him so dearly must respect his wishes yes of course said hamby yet at the same time i continued this woman was very ill a case of tomain poisoning do you think he can cure that asked hamby guilelessly and at that moment old joe and lynch came from the big room hamby started to turn but he was too late old joe's arms went around him and hamby's two elbows were clamped to his sides in a grip which more than one professional wrestler in our part of the world has found it impossible to break at the same time i stooped on my knees and grasped the man's two wrists because we were taking no chances of his gun lynch the ex-soldier had a cloth taken from the big table and he flung this over the head of the pacifist and stifled his cries i took a revolver from his hip pocket but joe was not satisfied search him carefully said he and soon i discovered another weapon in a side pocket then i made hasty search in a big closet of the room and found a lot of bundles of books and magazines tied with stout cords i took the cords and we bound the pacifist's wrists and ankles and put a gag in his mouth and then we felt sure he was really a pacifist we carried him to the closet and laid him on the floor where a humorous idea came to us these bundles of magazines and books were no doubt the ones which the mob had confiscated from comrade abel since they were no longer saleable they might as well be put to some use so i gathered arms full of them and distributed them over the form of Hamby until there was no longer a trace of invisible and while i was doing this i noticed in one corner of the closet under the bundles a wooden box about a foot square Upon trying to lift it I discovered that it weighed several times as much as it should have weighed if it had contained printed matter. "'Here's our infernal machine,' I whispered, and I picked it up gingerly and tiptoed out of the room and back to the kitchen and down a rear stairway of the building. I unlocked the door and opened it, and there, crouching in the shadows alongside the door, just as I expected, I saw a man. "'Hello,' I whispered. "'Hello,' said he, badly startled here's something belonging to Hamby. He wants me to give it to you. Be careful, it's heavy. I deposited the box in his hands and shut the door, and turned the lock again and groped my way upstairs, chuckling to myself as I imagined the man's plight. He would not know what to make of this incident, and I had an idea he would not be able to find out, because he could not leave his post. Nor would he have much time to figure over the matter, for when I got back to the light, i looked at my watch and it lacked just three minutes to twelve i found that lynch and old joe had shut the pacifist in the closet and were in the ante-room waiting for me i whispered that everything was all right a moment later we heard a sound in the big room and peered in and saw a door at the far end open and there was carpenter standing with his white robes gleaming in the light after a moment i realized that they gleamed even more than was natural I perceived once more that strange aura which had been noticed at the mass meeting, and by means of it I noticed an even more startling thing. There were drops of sweat on Carpenter's forehead, as always when he had laboured intensely in his soul. This time I saw that the drops were large, and they were drops of blood. A trembling seized me. I was awe-stricken before this man, afraid to go on with what I was doing, and equally afraid to back out. I remained staring helplessly, and saw him approach the sleeping figures and stand looking at them. "'Could you not watch with me one hour?' he said in his gentle, sad voice, and he put his hand on Comrade Abel's shoulder with the words, "'The time has come.' Abel started to his feet and began to apologize. The other said nothing but stooped and waked Manetta. and at that moment I heard the shrill blast of a whistle outside on the street. "'There's the brigade,' whispered old Joe end of chapter 55 chapter 56 i ran down the stairs and peered through the doorway and sure enough there were four or five automobiles stopped before the headquarters having approached from opposite direction i stood just long enough to see a crowd of men in khaki uniforms jumping out then i ran back and leaving old joe and lynch to keep guard at the top of the stairs i walked in and greeted carpenter he expressed no surprise at seeing me evidently his thoughts were on other things for my part i was trembling with excitement so that my knees would barely hold me how long would it be before t s and his crowd appeared i could figure the time it should take them to drive from eternal city but suppose something held them up how long would the ex-servicemen stay out in the street waiting for hamby to answer their signal surely not many minutes they would storm the place and hunt out their victim for themselves "'and suppose they should carry him off before the others arrived?' "'I had Hamby's two revolvers in my pocket. Should we use them, or not? The thought hit me all of a sudden, and apparently it hit old Joe at the same moment. "'Give me those guns, Billy,' he whispered, and I put them obediently into his hands, and he went quickly into the rear rooms. At the end of a minute he returned, saying, "'I unloaded them and threw them out the back window.' "'And even as he spoke—' the silence of the night outside was shattered by the scream of that siren which served to warn people out of the way when T.S. was moving his companies about, on location. I went up to Carpenter. I didn't enjoy telling him a lie. In fact, I had an idea that one couldn't lie to him successfully, but I tried it. Mr. Carpenter, Hamby left a message. He had to go downstairs and said he wanted to see you. Would you come down and meet him? Ah, yes, said Carpenter and he walked to the door and down the stairs without another word. The rest of us followed him, Abel and Manetta first, they being innocent and unsuspicious, and then Lynch, and then Joe and I. The prophet stepped out to the street, and was instantly surrounded by a group of a dozen ex-servicemen, two of whom grasped him by the arms. He did not lift a hand, nor even make a sound. Comrade Abel, of course, started to cry out in protest. Manetta the Mexican reverted to his ancestors his hand flashed to an inside pocket and a knife leaped out a soldier had hold of him and Minetta shouted stand back or i cut off your ears at which carpenter turned and in a stern commanding voice proclaimed let no man use force in my behalf they who shall use force shall perish by force Minetta stood still and of course lynch and old joe and i stood still and the dozen men about carpenter started to lead him away to their automobiles but they did not get very far upon the silence of the street a voice rang out ordinarily one would have known it was the voice of a woman but in this place under these exciting circumstances it seemed the voice of a supernatural being it almost sang the words it was like a silver bugle calling across a battlefield glorious thrilling hypnotic make way for the grand imperial caligula of the Klux clox everyone was startled but i think i was startled more than the rest for i knew the voice mary magna had taken another speaking part i was on the steps of the building so i could see over the heads of the crowd there were four of the big buses from eternal city two having approached from each direction some fifty figures had descended from them and others were still descending each one clad in a voluminous white robe with a white hood over the head and two black holes for eyes and another for the nose. These figures had spread out in a half-moon, entirely surrounding the little mob of ex-servicemen and penning them against the wall of the building. In the center of the half-moon, standing a few feet in advance, was the figure of the grand imperial kleagle with a red star upon the forehead of the white hood, and shrouded white arms stretched out, and in one hand a magic wand with a red light on the end. This wand was waving over the brigade members, and had apparently its full supernatural effect, for one and all they stood rooted to the spot, staring with wide-open eyes. End of chapter 56 Chapter 57 The grand opera voice raised again its silver chant, Give way, all mobs! Yield! Retire! Abdicate! Bow down! Make way for the mob of mobs, the irresistible, imperial, Superior supermob hearken to the Lord High Chief commanding dragon of the esoteric cohorts, the exalted immortal Grand Imperial Klegel of the Ku Klux clan. Then the Grand Imperial Klegel turned and addressed the white robed throng in a voice of sharp command. Clansmen, remember your oath. The hour of judgment is here. The guilty wretch cowers, the grand insuperable sentence has been spoken. Colum Animum, Imperiabilis similia similibus per quantum imperator inexorablis ingenium parasimilubia esperantur seva imperatus ignotum indignatio salvo suppitio indurato clansmen kneel as one man the host fell upon its knees clansmen swear suffractus illibatur orbis improvident ferient ruine you have heard the sentence what is the penalty is it death and a voice in the crowd cried death and the others took it up there was a roar death death said the grand imperial Klegel, arm of to khanu to flespio thalasis then facing the staring ex-servicemen fi ke ke per. finally the grand imperial Klegel pointed her shrouded white arm at carpenter who stood as pale as death but unflinchingly death to all traitors she cried death to all agitators death to all enemies of the klu klux klan kadimnatus incomparabilis ingenious exploiteur. let the loyal high inexorable guardians and the grand holy seneschals of the clan advance six shrouded figures stepped out from the crowd said the grand imperial clegal possess yourself of the body of this guilty wretch and to the ex-serviceman yield up this varlet to the high secret court-martial of the clan which alone has power to punish such as he what the bewildered members of the brigade made of all this hocus-pocus i had no idea afterwards when the adventure was over i asked mary where in the world did you get that stuff and she told me how she had once acted in a children's comedy in which there was an old magician who spent his time putting spells on people she had had to witness his incantations eight or ten times a week for nearly a year, so of course the phrases had got fixed in her memory, and they had served just as well to impress these grown-up children. Or, perhaps, the ex-servicemen thought this might be a further plan of those who had employed them. Whatever they thought, it was obvious that they were hopelessly outnumbered. There could be nothing for a mob to do but yield to a super-mob, and they yielded. Those who were in front of Carpenter stepped back, and the loyal, high, inexorable guardians and the grand, holy seneschals took Carpenter by the arms and led him away. Apparently, they were going to overlook the rest of us. But Old Joe and Lynch and myself took Abel and Manetta by the shoulders and shoved them along past the ex-servicemen and into the midst of the clansmen. There was no need to consider dignity after that. We hustled Carpenter to the nearest of the buses and put him in the grand imperial clegal followed and the rest of us clambered in after her sitting up beside the driver watching the scene was t s beaming with delight he got me by the hand and wrung it i could not speak my teeth were literally chattering with excitement carpenter sitting in the seat behind us must have realized by now the meaning of this scandalous adventure but he said not a word and the white-gowned clansmen piled in behind him and the siren shrieked out into the night, and the bus back to the corner, and turned, and sped off. And all the way to Eternal City, T.S. and I, and old Joe, slapped one another on the back, and roared with laughter, and the rest of the clansmen roared with laughter, all save the grand imperial Kleagle, who sat by Carpenter's side, and was discovered to be weeping. End of chapter 57 Chapter 58 T.S. and I had exchanged a few whispered words and decided that we would take Carpenter to his place, which was a few miles in the country from Eternal City. He would be as safe there as anywhere I could think of. When we had got to the studios we discharged our clansmen and arranged to send old Joe to his home and the three disciples to a hotel for the night, but then I invited Carpenter to step into T.S.'s car. He had not spoken a word and all he said now was, I wish to be alone. I answered, "I am taking you to a place where you may be alone as long as you choose. So he entered the car, and a few minutes later t s and I were escorting him into the latter's showy mansion. We were getting to be rather scared now, for carpenter's silence was forbidding, but again he said, "I wish to be alone." We took him upstairs to a bedroom and shut him in and left him, but taking the precaution to lock the door downstairs we stood and looked at each other feeling like two schoolboys who had been playing truant and would soon have to face the teacher you stay here billy insisted the magnet. you got to see him in de morning i won't i'll stay i said and looked at my watch it was after one o'clock give me an alarm clock i said because carpenter wakes with the birds and we don't want him escaping by the window so it came about that at daybreak I tapped on Carpenter's door softly so as to not waken him if he were asleep. But he answered, Come in, and I entered and found him sitting by the window watching the dawn. I stood timidly in the middle of the room and began, I realize, of course, Mr. Carpenter, that I have taken a very great liberty with you. You have said it, he replied, and his eyes were awful. But I persisted, if you knew what danger you were in, said he, "'Do you think that I came to Mobland to look for a comfortable life?' "'But I pleaded, if you only knew that particular gang. Do you realize that they had planted an infernal machine, a dynamite bomb, in that room, and all the world was to read in the newspapers this morning that you had been conspiring to blow up somebody?' said Carpenter, "'Would it have been the first time that I have been lied about?' "'Of course,' I argued, "'I know what I have done.' You can have no idea what you have done. You are too ignorant. I bowed my head, prepared to take my punishment. But at once Carpenter's voice softened. You are a part of Mobland, he said. You cannot help yourself. In Mobland it is not possible for even a martyrdom to proceed in an orderly way. I gazed at him a moment, bewildered. What's the good of a martyrdom? I cried. The good is that men can be moved in no other way. They are in that childish stage of being where they require blood sacrifice. But what kind of martyrdom, I argued, so undignified and unimpressive, to have hot tar smeared over your body and be hanged by the neck like a common criminal? I realized that this last phrase was unfortunate. Said Carpenter, I am used to being treated as a common criminal. Well, said I, in a voice of despair, of course, if you're absolutely bent on being hanged, if you can't think of anything you would prefer, I stopped, for I saw that he had covered his face with his hands. In the silence I heard him whisper, I prayed last night that this cup might pass from me, and apparently my prayer has been answered. Well, I said, deciding to cheer up, you see I have only been playing the part of Providence. Let me play it just a few days longer, until this mob of crazy soldier boys has got out of town again. I am truly ashamed for them, but I am one of them myself, so I understand them. They really fought and won a war, you see, and they are full of the madness of it, the blind, intense passions. Carpenter was on his seat. I know, he exclaimed, I know. You need not tell me about that. I do not blame your soldier-boys. I blame the men who incite them, the old men, the soft-handed men, who sit back in office-chairs and plan madness for the world. What shall be the punishment of these men?' They're a hard crowd, I admitted. "'I have seen them. They are stone-faced men. They are wolves with machinery. They are savages with polished fingernails. And they have made of the land a place of fools. They have made it mob land.' I did not try to answer him, but waited until the storm of his emotion passed. "'You are right, Mr. Carpenter, but that is the fact about our world, and you cannot change it. Carpenter flung out his arm at me, let no man utter in my presence the supreme blasphemy against life so of course i was silent and carpenter went and sat at the window again and watched the dawn at last i ventured all that your friends ask mr carpenter is that you will wait until this convention of the ex-soldiers has got out of town after that it may be possible to get people to listen to you but while the brigade is here it is impossible they are rough and they are wild they are taking possession of the city and will do what they please. If they see you on the streets they will inflict indignities upon you, they will mishandle you.' Said Carpenter, "'Do not fear those who kill the body, but fear those who kill the soul.' So again I fell silent, and presently he remarked, "'My brother, I wish to be alone.' Said I, "'Won't you please promise, Mr. Carpenter?' He answered, "'I make promises only to my father.' let me be end of chapter fifty eight chapter fifty nine i went downstairs and there was t s wandering around like a big fat monk in a purple dressing-gown and there was ma also only her dressing-gown was rose-pink with white chrysanthemums on it it took a lot to get these two awake at six o'clock in the morning you may be sure but there they were very much worried what does he say cried the magnet. "'He won't say what he is going to do. "'He won't promise to stay. "'He won't promise anything. Well, did you lock the door?' "'I answered that I had, and then Ma put in in a hurry. "'Billy, you got to stay here and take care of him. "'If he was to come downstairs and tell me to do something, I've got to do it.' "'I promised, and a little later they got ready a cup of coffee and a glass of milk "'and some rolls and butter and fruit, "'and I had the job of taking up the tray and setting it in the prophet's room.' When I came in, I tried to say cheerfully, Here's your breakfast, and not to show any trace of my uneasiness. Carpenter looked at me and said, You had the door locked? I summoned my nerve and answered, Yes. Said he, What is the difference to me between being your prisoner and being the prisoner of your rulers? Said I, Mr. Carpenter, the difference is that we don't intend to hang you. And how long do you propose to keep me here? For about four days, I said until the convention disbands. If you will only give me your word to wait that time you may have the freedom of this beautiful place, and when the period is over I pledge to you every help I can give to make known your message to the people.' I waited for an answer, but none came, so I set down the tray and went out, locking the door again. In downstairs was one of T.S.'s secretaries with copies of the morning newspapers, and I picked up a Times and there was a headline all the way across the paper. Klu Klux Klan kidnaps Carpenter ranting Red Prophet disappears in tooting autos. I understood, of course, that the secret agency which had engineered the mobbing of the Prophet would have had their stories all ready for our morning newspapers, stories which played up to the full the finding of an infernal machine and an unprovoked attack upon ex-servicemen by the armed followers of the Red Prophet. But now all this was gone and instead was a story glorifying the clansmen as the saviors of the city's good name it was evident that up to the hour of going to press neither of the two newspapers had any idea but that the white-robed figures were genuine followers of the grand imperial pliegel. the times carried at the top of its editorial page a brief comment in large type congratulating the people of western city upon the promptness with which they had demonstrated their devotion to the cause of law and order but of course the truth about our made-to-order mob could not be kept very long when you have hired a hundred moving-picture actors to share in the greatest mystery of the age it will not be many hours before your secret has got to the newspaper offices as a matter of fact it wasn't two hours before the evening blair was calling the home of the movie magnate to inquire where he had taken the kidnapped prophet there was no use trying to deny anything said the editor diplomatically because too many people had seen the profit transferred to Mr. T.S.'s automobile. Of course, T.S.'s secretary, who answered the phone, lied valiantly. But here again we knew the truth would leak. There were servants and chauffeurs and gardeners, and all of them knew that the white road mystery was somewhere on the place. They would be offered endless bribes, and some of them would accept. In the course of the next hour or two there were a dozen newspaper reporters besieging the mansion, and cameraman taking pictures of it, and even spying with opera glasses from a distance, before my mind's eye flashed new headlines. Movie magnet hides mob profit from law. This was an aspect of the matter which we had at first overlooked. Carpenter was due at Judge Ponty's police court at nine o'clock that morning. Was he going, demanded the reporters, and if not, why not? Mary Magnan no doubt would be willing to sacrifice the 200 dollars bail that she had put up but the judge had a right to issue a bench warrant and send a deputy for the prisoner would he do it behind the scenes of western city's government there began forthwith a tremendous diplomatic duel who it was that wanted carpenter dragged out of his hiding place we could not be sure but we knew who it was that wanted him to stay hidden i called up my uncle timothy and explained the situation it wasn't worth while for him to waste his breath scolding i was going to stand by my prophet if he wanted to put an end to the scandal let him do what he could to see that the prophet was let alone but billy what can i do he cried it's a matter of the law i answered fudge you know perfectly well there's no magistrate or judge in this city that won't do what he's told if the right people tell him what i want you to do is to get busy with de wiggs and westerly and carson and the rest of the big gang and persuade them that there's nothing to be gained by dragging carpenter out of his hiding place what did they want anyway i argued they wanted the agitation stopped well we had stopped it and without any bloodshed if they dragged the prophet out from concealment and into a police court they would only have more excitement more tumult ending nobody could tell how i called up several other people who might have influence and meanwhile t-s was over at his office in eternal city pleading over the telephone with the editors of the afternoon papers. They had got the Red Prophet out of the way during the convention, and why couldn't they let well enough alone? Wasn't there news enough with five or ten thousand war heroes coming to town without bothering about one poor religious freak? When you shoot a load of shot at a duck, and the bird comes tumbling down, you do not bother to ask which particular shot it was that hit the target. And so it was with these frantic efforts of one shot must have hit, for at eleven o'clock that morning, when the case of John Doe Carpenter versus the Commonwealth of Western City was reached in Judge Ponte's court, and the bailiff called the name of the defendant, and there was no answer, the magistrate in a single sentence declared the bail forfeited, and passed on to the next case without a word. And all three of our afternoon newspapers reported this incident in an obscure corner on an inside page. The red prophet, was dead and buried. End of chapter sixty. Chapter sixty one. I took up Carpenter's lunch at one o'clock and discovered to my dismay that he had not tasted his breakfast. I ventured to speak to him, but he sat on a chair, gazing ahead of him and paying no attention to me, so I left him alone. At six o'clock in the evening, I took up his dinner and discovered that he had not touched either breakfast or lunch but still he had nothing to say so i took back the dinner and went downstairs and said to t s we've got ourselves in for a hunger strike needless to say under the circumstances we did not very heartily enjoy our own dinner and t s neglecting his important business stayed around getting up out of one chair and walking nowhere and then sitting down in another chair i did the same and after we had exchanged chairs a dozen times it being then about eight o'clock in the evening i said by the way hadn't you better call up the morning papers and persuade them to be decent so t s seated himself at the telephone and asked for the managing editor of the western city times and i sat and listened to the conversation it began with a reminder of the amount of advertising space which eternal city consumed in the times in the course of a year and also the amount of its payroll in the community it wasn't often that t-s asked favors but he wanted to ask one now he wanted the times to let up on this profit business and especially about the prophet's connection with the moving picture industry everything was quiet now the prophet wasn't bothering anybody suddenly at the height of his eloquence t-s stopped and it seemed to me as if he jumped a foot out of his chairs vat and then vy man you're crazy he turned upon me his eyes wide with dismay billy they got a report carpenter is just now speaking to a mob o' de steps of de city hall the magnet did not wait to see me jump out of my chair or to hear my exclamations but turned again to the telephone. my god man what do i know about it the feller was up in his room two hours ago when we took him his dinner he wouldn't eat it he wouldn't speak that was the last i heard having bolted out of the room and upstairs i found carpenter's door locked i opened it and rushed in the place was empty the bird had flown. How had he got out? Had he climbed through the window and slid down a rain spout in his prophetic robes? Had he won the heart of some servant? Had some newspaper reporter or agent of our enemies used bribery? I rushed downstairs and got my car from the garage, and all the way to the city I spent my time in such futile speculations. How Carpenter, having escaped from the house, had managed to get into town so quickly, that was much easier to figure out our highways are full of motor traffic, and almost any driver will take in a stranger. I came to the city. Even outside the crowded district the traffic was held up for a minute or two at every corner, so I found time to look about and to realize that the brigade had got to town. All day special trains had been pouring into the city, literally dozens of them by every road, and now the streets were thronged with men in uniform marching arm in arm shouting chanting war-cries roaming in search of adventure Tomorrow was the first day of the convention the day of the big parade Tonight was a night of riot everything in town was free to ex-servicemen and to all others who could borrow or buy a uniform the spirit of the occasion was set forth in a notice published on the editorial page of the times hello beau have a cigarette take another one take anything you see around the place the town is yours take it into camp with you scruff it up to your heart's content order it about let it carry grub to you have it shine your shoes hand it your coat and tell it to hold it until the show is over we are all waiting your orders shove us back if we crowd push us off the street give us your grip and tell us where to deliver it any errands call us if you want to go anywhere don't ask for directions just jump into the car and tell us where you're bound for let's have another one before we part Put up your money it's no good here this one's on western city i saw that it was not going to be possible to drive through the jam so i put my car in a parking place and set out for the city hall on foot on the way i observed that the invitation of the times had been accepted the brigade had taken possession of the town it was just about possible to walk on the downtown streets there were solid masses of noisy pushing people every other man in uniform evidently there had been a tacit agreement to repeal the eighteenth amendment to the constitution for the next three days bootleggers had drawn up their trucks and automobiles along the curbs and corn whiskey, otherwise known as white lightning was freely sold you would meet a man with a bottle in his hand and the effects of other bottles in his face who would embrace you and offer you a drink in the same block you would meet another man who would invite you to buy drinks for everybody in sight the town had apparently agreed that no invitation should be declined. If the great republic of Mobland had been unable to make for its return war heroes the new world which it had promised them, if it could not even give them back the jobs they had had before they left, surely the least it could do was to get them drunk. And several times in each block, you would have to get off the sidewalk for a group of ten or twenty flush, dishevelled men playing the great national game of craps roll the bones they would shout completely ignoring the throngs which surged about them each had had his pile of bills and silver laid out on the pavement and his bottle of white lightning now and then one would take a swig and now and then one would start singing all we do is sign the payroll and we don't get a goddamn cent you would go a little farther and find a couple of automobiles trying to get past and a merry crowd amusing itself throwing large waste cans in front of them someone would shout who won the war, and the answer would come booming, the goddamn slackers, or maybe it would be the goddamn officers. The crowd would move along, starting to chant the favorite refrain, "You're in the army now, you're not behind the plow. You son of a, you'll never get rich. You're in the army now, and from farther down the street would come a chorus from another crowd of marchers. I got a girl in Baltimore. The streetcar runs right by her door. every now and then you would come on a fistfight. Or maybe a fight with bottles, and a crowd laughing and whooping, engaged in pulling the warriors apart and sitting on them. Through a mile or two of this kind of thing, I made my way, my heart sinking deeper with misgiving. I got within a couple of blocks of the city hall, and then suddenly I came upon the thing I dreaded: my friend Carpenter, in the hands of the mob. End of chapter 60. Recording by Tom Wace. Tom's Audiobooks. Com.